we continue through John, we are still in the last dinner with Jesus and his disciples. Been in that for most of the fall, and actually it'll take us all the way through Christmas time before this dinner is finally uh, finished. So as we look at this, Jesus and his disciples, on the night before he was betrayed, he is giving them his final encouragements. And here in this passage, he encourages them with what they should be living for and what the goal of life should be. Follow along with me as I read from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 and 16. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit. That your spirit, Lord, would take your word and put it in your children. That you would make us more like your son. Lord Jesus, that you would root us that you would strengthen the vitality that we have with you. And for those that are not connected to you, Lord, we pray that you would give them life this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shakespeare's character, Macbeth, states this in a reflection in the play. He says, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There are many who fear that life, life itself, is without meaning. But indeed, there are many more who fear, not that life itself is without meaning, but they fear that they they themselves will have lived a life without meaning that they will live a life where they did not make a difference and their life didn't count for anything. And the fear is not that life itself is a, but a shadow, but rather that they are, that their life is but a shadow. It used to be um, that the number one stated fear that people had was the fear of, anybody? Public speaking. Was the fear of public speaking. However, 
that has shifted. That's why we're going to have more of you talk up front. Um, <laughs> that has shifted, and what has happened over the last decade or so, the number one identified fear that people have is not the fear of public speaking, not that people aren't afraid of it anymore, but the number one fear that people have is that their life won't count, that they won't have any significance, that their life won't be meaningful. One person reflects, my biggest fear is that I'll get old and I won't have achieved all the things that I wanted to in life. I'll be alone, without a husband or children. I'll have missed the opportunities to reach my goals. I'll never see what the world has to offer. I I want to make a difference. I want my life to count. And so for people who want to make their life count, many of those people move here to Southern Maryland. And this might be why you came here. You came here for a job and you decided to pursue a career path because you wanted to make a difference in the world. You wanted to work for something and be a part of something that made a contribution, that made a difference. That you might be one who, you know, fully support the advertising campaign from a few years ago that the Navy is a global force for good. And you wanted to participate in that. You wanted to make that a greater reality. And you wanted to use your time and effort to do something that is worthwhile. What Jesus does in this passage for us is that he reveals to us the goal of life. And he reveals to us that no matter the vocation that you choose or the vocation that the Lord leads you in, He reveals here what it is that makes life meaningful, what it is that gives life a true purpose and a true goal. Indeed, he explains even why we are here at all. And the answer is this, that you would bear much fruit, that bearing much fruit is the goal of life. In fact, in this passage here, it's the overriding concern. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prepares. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Why? Because the goal is for us to bear much fruit. In fact, in this passage, you can easily see how this is just the overriding concern that Jesus' followers would bear much fruit. Because in the green here is every time that in the passage that it says, bear fruit or bear much fruit. He's making it clear what is important, important in this passage. And then verse 8 tells us, of one example, that my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That God is glorified not only and not simply by our praise and worship alone, but he is most glorified by followers whose lives bear much fruit. In fact, this is the identifying mark of what it means to be a Christian. We see this here in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What is the proof of someone being a disciple of Jesus? Their life bears much fruit. Again, in verse 16, he clarifies the purpose, the goal, why we're here. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why did God choose you if you're in Christ Jesus? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and do what? I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit, and the fruit that you have should abide. In fact, it is such a distinguishing mark of a Christian, such an unfailing mark that this is what it means to be a Christian, that Jesus describes that those who claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of Jesus, who do not bear fruit, he takes away. That is, that there are some who claim to be in the vine, 
some who claim to be Christians that are not Christians. And it's evidenced because the absence of fruit disqualifies them. You know, unfruitful branches, those that claim to be Christians who are not. This is just one of several verses that we've seen in John, where he is describing that not all who claim to follow Christ actually follow Christ. What this means is that if there's not fruit in your life, you need to reconsider the validity of your Christianity. And look at this image and reflect on it for a moment. Dead branches are attached to the vine, but they are dead. In fact, you might even say that the dead branches are, that they're faithful. I mean, they're always there. They're continuously present. They are steady. They are unchanging. Now, they are not faithful in the terms of being full of faith, but they're constant. And they're connected. They say, I'm a part of the vine. But they're completely and utterly dead. And what happens to them is this. If, any, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they are burned. Certainly, undoubtedly, a picture of hell that Jesus is describing here that's terrifying. So a question we must ask ourselves is that if you are one who calls yourself a Christian, and I know some of you are investigating what this means and you've got questions and you're working through this. Others of you, you've called yourself a Christian your whole life just because that's just what you thought you were supposed to do. But here's a question. Is your life fruitful? Is your life bearing fruit? Is there fruit in your life beyond yourself and beyond what is your greatest self-interest? which is namely your family. Is there fruit bearing in your life beyond you and beyond, what you, beyond your family? If the word of God is true, and it is, what this means then is that there are people who are a part of Cornerstone, who are attached to the vine, who say, I'm attached to the vine, and are dead. And I fear for people who claim to follow Jesus, maybe even members of this church, who will be cut off, and who will be thrown into the fire. And so if you are one who is here today that you are attached, or you identify yourself in being attached to some capacity, but you are dead, may today be the day of life through Jesus Christ that you receive it and come to life. Because the goal and the mark of a Christian is that you would bear much fruit. Now what is this fruit that we're called to bear here and bearing much fruit? There's actually a lot of debate about this. I think a lot of the debate stems around the fact that there's a lot of excuses to say this doesn't apply to me. But we need not be reductionistic because Scripture makes many references to this. In the Gospel of John that we're looking at in our own passage here, John talks about that prayer, that fruit is the product of effective prayer, that fruit includes joyful obedience to Jesus Christ as a great joy in experiencing that joy. Love for other Christians and laying your life down through difficulties and hardship. It includes being a witness to the world. In the Old Testament, Israel was often judged. There's many passages where Israel was judged for their lack of fruit. And what fruit did they lack in particular? One passage, Isaiah chapter 5, which we'll return to later. God's judgment comes upon them because of their lack of fruit. And the lack of fruit that they had in Isaiah chapter 5 was that they did not practice 
justice or righteousness, and they were not a community that lived out justice in their community, and they did not live out righteousness. In Matthew, John the Baptist describes that true fruit is repentance. In Romans, Paul describes fruit as winning converts to faith in Jesus Christ. I think Paul also describes true fruit as growing in holiness. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul identifies that financial generosity, giving money, is fruit that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, that his followers are characterized by radical generosity. Galatians chapter 5 identifies that the fruit of the Spirit and identifies all kinds of Christ-like character. Colossians chapter 1 identifies that both spiritual and numeric growth within a church are examples, are examples of fruit. To put it simply, is that fruit is that both internally in our own character and externally in the way that we live our lives, we would become more like Christ. That our likeness, that, that we would be like our Lord in both who we are and in what we do. That there would be likeness to Christ, we'd be more like Christ internally and externally. And let me say clearly, if the external is not there, if your life is not reflective of the fruit that Christ did, and, you, and it's not there externally, it's not there internally either. Because the two of these things go, go together. So what is the goal of your life? What is God's will for your life? Here is a profound truth. A truth that is life-giving, a truth that will fill your life with meaning and fill your life with significance, is that the goal of life is that you would bear much fruit, that you would become more like Jesus and produce fruit more like Jesus. What this means is that God's purpose is ultimately not that you know, you would become a great pastor, or that you would be the world's best mom or dad, or that you'd be an amazing husband or wife. God's purpose ultimately is not, that, not to transform you into a wealthy, self-sufficient engineer, or a renowned attorney, or a beloved teacher, or a decorated, or decorated officer, or a successful artist. God's ultimate purpose is not for you to be healthy, or wealthy, or successful, but his ultimate purpose is that you would bear much fruit, and be more like Jesus, and produce more fruit like Jesus. To state it simply, in a slightly different way by H.B. Charles, he puts it this way. He says, it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God so that the children of God become like the Son of God. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God so that the children of God may, be, may look like the Son of God. His goal is for you to bear much fruit. Well, how does this happen? It comes through two ways that this fruit grows. How do we get max fruit production? Two actions. Abiding and cutting. Abiding and pruning. Tells us in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There are some things in the word of God that are hard to understand. This is not one of them. As he makes it clear that the goal is that we would produce much fruit, and the way that we produce much fruit, as he states repeatedly, as highlighted in the yellow, is that we would abide in Jesus. 
And he clarifies and says, He it is that bears much fruit, whoever abides in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that, of course, doesn't mean you can't do nothing at all. Of course, people fill their days doing stuff. I mean, people do something. People have jobs. They grow gardens. People go to school. They learn all kinds of things. But they can do all of that without Jesus Christ. Even more terrifying is that pastors can pastors, campus ministers can minister, counselors can counsel without Jesus Christ. But what he's identifying is that Without Jesus Christ, you can do nothing of eternal value, and you have no ability to produce fruit apart from Jesus. And the way that you produce fruit is by abiding in him, that there is this vital connection of you being united to Christ, this vital connection of life and the lifeblood flowing back and forth. The text tells us several different ways that this works out. How do you abide? Well, it occurs by his word abiding in you. That you know God's word, that you respond to God's word, that his word is in you, that you know it, that you experience it, that you embrace it, that it infuses you. And then as a result of his word working in you, you abide by communing with God in prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you as a reference to prayer. You abide by not only knowing God's word and through that understanding what Christ has done and communing with him in prayer, but that results and knowing and experiencing goes from head knowledge to an actual experience of experiencing his love and growing in that experience of his love and living out of that love. And then that love then turns into joyful new obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will ab- abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And this will turn into joy as it overflows. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's just these different terms describing that we are to abide in Christ, in his word, in prayer, in relationship, in the experience, in love, that this manifests in this obedience. The idea being is that we are so connected to Christ, so abiding with him, it's so lodged in our hearts, so infused in our being, that the most natural thing for us to do is to abide in him and to bear much fruit. Now let me be a little bit more specific. How do you abide? You abide like this. You make a rhythm in your life to abide in Jesus. You make a rhythm in your life to abide in Jesus. Consider some other examples from your life. What do you do if you've got a favorite show on Netflix and you want to make sure that you see it when it comes out on Thursday evening? What do you do? You create a rhythm in your life where you clear out your schedule. You push other things that might need to get done. You push them out of the way so that you can be there to watch your favorite show as your favorite show comes out, right? That you'll be able to talk about it the next day. Is that you, you set a rhythm in your life to clear your schedule, to push other things aside so that you can watch it. And then if you've missed it for some time and you decide that you're going to binge watch a series over the course of a weekend, what do you do? You clear out your schedule, you push other things, these things out of the way, you remove other things, you take other things that might be important and good to do, you push them out of the way so you can devote time to binge-watching Netflix, Consider in some other areas of your life. How do you stay physically fit? You establish a rhythm in your life where you arrange your schedule, you arrange your life so that you can exercise. And you know that you need to do this because if you don't, your muscles will atrophy. You won't be as physically fit as you want. You won't have the health benefits of regular activity if you don't have a rhythm of regular exercising. How do you eat healthy? 
You establish a rhythm in your life where you plan out your menus, you plan out what you're shopping, you plan out what and when you're going to eat so you don't just eat junk food. You establish a rhythm so that you can eat healthy and experience the benefits of that. How do you abide in Jesus? Same way, you establish a rhythm in your life. You establish a rhythm in your life of abiding in Jesus so that what sustains you, what inspires you, what strengthens you, what nourishes and guides you is not Netflix, not your exercise, not your eating plan, but is Jesus Christ. Exercise and Netflix and your healthy eating, that doesn't happen unless you make a rhythm in your life for it to happen. Abiding in Jesus doesn't happen unless you make it a rhythm in your life to be abiding in Jesus as part of your life. Your life group leaders, elders, Sunday school teachers, our staff, pastors, we'd love to help you with this. We'd love to encourage you in this. And we'd love to encourage you to abide in Jesus because it is the essential condition of spiritual fruitfulness. It is the essential condition of those who are attached to the vine and are not dead but have life flowing through them and are producing good fruit. Abiding in Jesus is the spiritual, the essential condition to have a life that is filled with meaningfulness and a life that is lived towards a goal that gives you purpose and significance that you would bear much fruit. So how does it occur? Much fruit grows through abiding, And probably the most shocking part of this passage is this, is that much fruit only grows also through pruning. It only grows through cutting. And Jesus says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Viticulturists, which are vine dressers, grape tenders, grape farmers, Viticulturists, in their, one of their guides to describing how you tend to vines, they say this, pruning grapes is a vital part of their overall health. Why? Because there are dead branches that need to get removed so that the vine is able to grow. It's a vital part of their overall health. It says regular pruning is essential for controlling grape canes because the vine starts to grow all kinds of different directions. Also, the vine can also seek to put down roots outside of the, outside of the, trunk, of the, the trunk of the vine. Regular pruning is essential for controlling grape canes and for producing quality fruit yields. So it's necessary for the health of the vine and to produce quality fruit. Now, to an amateur, when a vineyard gets pruned, it looks cruel and wasteful. There are piles and piles and piles, truckloads of healthy vines that have been cut off. Indeed, to the amateur, if you looked at a field that was recently pruned, and you see hundreds of bleeding, you know, cut vines across it, it looks like someone came through and a a horde of locusts came through and just devoured it and sucked all of the life out of it. But to the vine dresser, the vine dresser knows that the only way to grow healthy and delicious fruit 
is through regular pruning. In fact, no fruit-bearing branch is, ex is exempt. And the branches that are producing the most fruit, that are doing the best, get cut back so that they can produce even more fruit. And that cutting, that shearing and pruning, is painful and necessary for the health of the vine, necessary to remove other things, necessary so that the, the vine dresser can train the vine in the way that he wants to that he wants it to grow. Because you do not have a healthy vine and you cannot grow delicious fruit without pruning. For those of you here who are in a stage of life where it feels like God is pruning you, take heart. Because the, the hand of the vine dresser is never as close as it is when he has his shears. And take heart. Because though it feels in the given season, like all life has been removed, take heart because God's will for you is that you would bear much fruit and he is doing it so that you would bear much fruit. So we've examined here the goal to produce much fruit. We've examined how this fruit is produced through abiding and cutting. And we see all this comes out of this statement that Jesus makes where he says, I am the vine, and he is identifying that the fruit grows in connection to Jesus. And we see where he says in verse 1, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. In verse 5, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what is Jesus stating when he identifies himself as the vine? Certainly, this vital connection that needs to happen so that there is much fruit-bearing. But like all of the statements that we have seen in the Gospel of John, each of the statements that Jesus gives to reveal some aspect of himself is rooted in a deep history, in a deep history of Scripture that he is drawing from. So we have seen through the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus being at the temple. And he says, destroy this temple, and three days later I will raise it up again. But he was referring to the temple of his body. And that the way to have access to God, that the presence and dwelling of God is not in the Jewish temple, but is found in Jesus Christ himself. And then when Jesus went out into the wilderness and he was feeding the 5,000 plus women and children out in the desert, he said, I am the bread of life. And certainly the image that Jesus is saying is that he is the one who nourishes and sustains us and feeds us. But more than that, Jesus was saying that he is the true and better Moses who feeds his people in the wilderness and leads them to a new deliverance. And then at the Feast of Booths, during the water ceremony, Jesus stands up in the midst of the water ceremony where they are talking about the Old Testament prophecies that one day deliverance would come, forgiveness would come. One day there would be a future where the Spirit of God would go across the, 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 the world as water spreads across the earth. And Jesus stands up and he declares, I am the living water. I am the one who is the, your deliverance. I am your forgiveness. I am your future. And then the people of Israel were longing for the day that the glory of God would return to the temple. And they'd have this huge candle lighting ceremony. The temple would be illuminated. 
And on the day when the temple's were, torches were extinguished, a visible reminder that the glory of God had left, had left, Jesus stands in front of these extinguished torches, and he cries out, and he says, I am the light of the world. And those people are gathered together. He says, on another time, he says, I am the gate. My sheep know me, and I know them. And there are others of other fold that he is the one who gives the access to the Father. He is the entry point. And Jesus otherwise says, I am the good shepherd. Unlike the false shepherds of Israel who fed upon the sheep, who abandoned the sheep like the hired hand, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then before the, very, the tomb of the very dead Lazarus, Jesus calls out and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not I point to it, not I reveal it, but I am myself the resurrection and the life. And then in this very conversation around the dinner table, the disciples don't know where Jesus is going and they're disturbed about this. And Jesus says to them, you don't know where you are going, but you do know the way because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And here in this passage, we come to the final I am statement that Jesus is making. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What exactly is he saying? The grapevine was a symbol of national life for the Israelites. Much the way that for us the stars and stripes are. That when we see the stars and stripes, we think of freedom, we think of liberty, we think of democracy and other things that we identify with our country. Well, for the Israelites, the grapevine was that symbol. Indeed, they had it stamped on some of their coins. When coins were made, they had the grapevine because that was the symbol of national identity. And then in the entryway to the temple, there was this massive grapevine. You can see the scale where the branches, which were six feet long, each of the branches, and the tendrils and the leaves and the grapes were either made of gold or they were gilded in gold and covered with gold. And this was what they had as their identity in their place that says, we are, this is who we are. And that comes from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament frequently used the image of a vineyard and a vine as a symbol for Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, which I read from earlier, I referenced earlier, states this. The vineyard, now think through who is the vineyard and who is the vine dresser. For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his, pleasant, are his pleasant planting. Who is the vineyard? It's the nation of Israel. It's the people of God. Who is the vine dresser? It is the Lord of hosts, God Almighty. And God makes clear to them that he called them out. He planted them as a vine. And he gave them every provision so that they could be a blessing to the world. Here is vineyard imagery describing this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Whose vineyard? God's vineyard. What does he say about the vineyard? My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it out of stones. It was a really good field. It was a really good place to grow a vineyard. He cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower to protect the vineyard in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Every provision was made for this vineyard to be fruitful, to be prosperous, to be successful, to be a blessing to the world. But the problem was, this vineyard 
the Israelites, the people of God, this vineyard only produced sour grapes. I looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. And the irony of the Israelites picking the vineyard as a, nas- as a national image was that every passage in Scripture that talks about Israel being a vine and being a grapevine is followed by a critique of their failure to produce fruit and the judgment that is coming against the vine because of the failure to produce fruit. And so, in the midst of this, the psalmist declares in Psalm 80 that there would be another vine who would come. Indeed, all of Psalm 80 describes this, but a couple of verses say this, Restore us, O God of hosts, and let your face shine, that we may be saved. Who would be saved? That the people of God would be saved, the Israelites. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. What is the vine that he brought out of Egypt? Referring to the Exodus when Moses led the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. But you might also remember that God declared in Matthew, in the fulfillment of prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. That there is one coming who would be called out of Egypt to be the new people of God, to be the locus of who God is and what God is doing in this world. And he goes on to state this, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see that you have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and the son whom you made strong for yourself. Who is that son? The nation of Israel? They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, May they perish at the rebuke of your face. He is identifying that there is judgment brought against the nation of Israel. But he goes on to say this. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Now what's going to happen when this son of man who is going to be strong for the Lord comes? This new vine. Then shall we not turn from you, Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. What Jesus is identifying is he is saying, I am the vine. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the man of God at God's right hand. I am the son of man whom God has made strong. I am the one who gives life through whom the people will call upon his name. I am the one who has superseded Israel as the locus of the people of God. That the center point, the axle of the people of God, is not the nation of Israel, nor America, nor any other ethnic identity, but is Jesus Christ himself. The true vine is not Israel, but is Jesus. What does that mean for us? It means this. A nation with the purest and best leadership is a dead branch without Jesus Christ. A church with the most gifted pastor and staff and elders and deacons, with most experienced and wise and godly women, the church with the greatest resources and opportunities, is at best sour grapes without Jesus Christ. A family with the best parents who have great education, who have a robust family life, who engages in spiritual disciplines, who study the Word of God together, is nothing without Jesus. The individual Christian 
who excels in all kinds of areas, who is caring and fun and thoughtful, who has great opportunities and great education, that alleged Christian will be cut off unless they abide in Jesus Christ. So whether you are gifted or not gifted at all, whether you have an incredible personality or not, whether life goes well for you or it goes poorly, the one who bears much fruit is the one who abides in Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in him and go and bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the vine, and we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, I do pray that you would grow us in vitality in our relationship with you. That just as the, the branches draw their life, their sap, their energy, their nutrition, their nourishment, their strength from the vine, may we do so from you. May your word dwell rich, richly in us. May prayer with you strengthen us and encourage us. May our lives be filled with the joy and experience of your love and joyful obedience to you, living as the way that you designed us and made us. But Father, today I do especially pray for those here who have attached themselves to the church or attached themselves to you, but who are dead branches. And Father, I pray, pray, pray that today by the supernatural working of your spirit, you would birth life in them. And you would draw them to yourself that they may bear much fruit. We pray this in your name. Amen.